0: It is Wednesday, February twenty second, twenty twenty three, and this is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being
1: with us. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, we'll get updates from the state capitol as legislators discuss child labor, gender affirming medical care, and short term rentals. And Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis talks with members of the band Lark and Poe about their upcoming show at George's in Fayetteville this weekend. First today, the Arkansas Poison and Drug Information
0: Center is seeing a rise in pediatric drug overdoses. Since 2005, the center has seen a 300% increase in overdoses among patients aged 13 to 19 and a nearly 800% increase in those under age 12. Ozarks at Largestina Carruth has more.
2: Calls to the Arkansas Poison and Drug Information Center, also called Poison Control, adds up to around 21,000 per year or roughly 60 calls a day. Medical director for the center, Ari Phillip, says the most alarming trend he's seen recently is among pediatric overdoses on medication.
3: For lack of a, a more elegant term, pediatric suicide attempts, which is quite concerning. We do receive a fair number of calls from hospitals asking for guidance on how to navigate these challenging poisonings. But overall, we've our, our call volume has. Re- stayed relatively constant, but the the types of calls that we're seeing are, abs- are certainly changing, and we, we do see some evolving trends over time relating to particular poisons.
2: He says some of the more recent trends in accidental drug overdoses include fentanyl and THC edibles and gummies.
3: You know, nationwide, the number of these cases over a span of about five years has increased by well over 1,000%. And we're seeing this trend mirrored here in Arkansas. We are seeing more commonly as these become more accessible that uh, young children might come across these THC edibles that they confuse with candy or they might not know is potentially harmful. And while this may not cause tremendously severe effects to an adult who's taking a, a single dose, to a small child who might be taking an adult-sized dose of this, or multiple of them thinking it's candy. This can potentially cause some fairly severe effects, and we see these children sometimes admitted to the hospital or in rare cases even the ICU.
2: And Phillips says the Poison Control Center has faced growing challenges over the past few years thanks in part to the pandemic and the spread of misinformation on social media. Philip points to a record number of calls the center received in 2021 after people started taking the deworming medication ivermectin as a possible treatment for the coronavirus.
3: So we did see a spike in ivermectin cases when there was uh, when people had started taking that, thinking that it would potentially have an impact on outcomes in COVID. And social media has affected some of the calls that we've gotten. Uh, Several years ago when there was the Tide Pod challenge, subsequent to that, there have been things like TikTok challenges that relate to things like taking Benadryl. And we get calls about these cases, and sometimes it results in kids going to the hospital or sometimes even winding up in the ICU. And so it's really important for us from the Poison Center side to be vigilant about some of these trends, because while it might seem benign because you see people doing it online or you know seeing it all over social media... Some of it can be really quite curious.
2: Philip says one tip that would help reduce the number of calls they see dramatically is at-home medication and drug safety.
3: Keeping medications secured and away from the view of children. Now, if they're not locked and in an inaccessible place, kids will absolutely get to them. Even a lot of the over-the-counter medications, if you take too much of it, things like iron, uh, Benadryl, or diphenhydramine. These can be potentially very serious um, if kids get, in, get into them, even things as simple as uh, anti-inflammatories like aspirin or acetaminophen, Tylenol.
2: And while Philip encourages people to contact 911 if a reaction is severe or in the case of an emergency, he says contacting poison control can maybe save you a trip to the ER.
3: But if you're not having any immediate symptoms, we can absolutely help walk you through what to potentially expect and what warning signs you might look out for. We have a lot of experts here who are, um, are excellent in being able to tease out which are going to be the more serious things that are, you're going to have to be evaluated in the hospital quickly and what are going to be the potentially um, more benign things that you might not even think of. And so poison centers are not just necessarily for kids that, you know, swallow too much toothpaste or got into some of their parents' medications, but also adults who might have swapped their medication, taken an extra dose of medications, or concerned that they are having uh, some, some adverse effect.
2: And he says the poison control center isn't just for help in an emergency, but it's also a resource for when you just aren't sure what to do.
3: But we answer questions uh, on things like, what do I do if I get bitten by a snake? Or what do I do if um, my kid has eaten things that I think are toxic berries along the side of the road? Or what, what do I do if I'm having a weird reaction to a particular medication I've just been prescribed?
2: The Arkansas Poison Control Center is a service of the UAMS College of Pharmacy and operates a 24-hour helpline with registered nurses and pharmacists on call. The free service is available for anyone in Arkansas. That number is 1-800-222-1222. That's
1: 800-222-1222. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Tomorrow morning, dozens of students from five Northwest Arkansas elementary schools will participate in The Amazing Shake at the Jones Center in Springdale. The event, a coordination between SOAR after-school program, Cox Communications, and the Tyson Family Foundation, is an extension of an after-school program that focuses on, among other things, soft skills like conversation. Yesterday, Ben Radiski, the executive director of the SOAR after-school program, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy news studio. He says
4: SOAR is present in four Springdale elementary schools and one in Rogers. And at each of those sites, um, we serve around 100 students per day, um, almost the entire school year. If school's in, then SOAR is in, except for some edges. Um, And what we try to do at SOAR is we try to make sure kids come into our program and have a place where they belong, but they're also challenged. Um, We help them with their homework. We do all kinds of different activities and clubs, leadership um, development, work on communication, a bunch of the soft skill um, development that we think is really important and plays a big role in academic growth. Um, um, We work a lot on that. And that's kind of the bread and butter of SOAR is just helping develop kids into the leaders we know that they are.
1: Soft skills. How do you help you know, maybe a shy child or someone who hasn't, doesn't have those, how do you help them bring those out?
4: Yeah. Well, what we, what we explain to kids is like, we believe that you have all of those skills within you. And sometimes, you know, some students, they have bigger skills that come out more naturally um, than those, you know, introverts or shy students. But a lot of times, it only takes like six seconds of courage to have some of those soft skills. So, you know, you might not want to talk to a person. You might not be ready to meet an adult. But if you can have six seconds of courage and go and shake their hands, look them in the eye and say your name to where they can hear it, that is just a foundation that you can build on. And we know that whenever kids have a foundation and they're supported by not only like the adults in our program, the, you know, the program leaders, but we try to develop a uh, culture of celebration between the kids that if they're not gonna be judged, if they don't, you know, if they don't achieve the mark they wanna achieve in that moment, um, then they'll be able to like try again and have confidence and develop that grit to keep trying keep improving keep improving, um, just keep getting better.
1: All right, so Thursday at the Jones Center, mm-hmm. The Amazing Shake.
4: Yes, sir. I love the title of this. What happens at The Amazing Shake? Yeah, so The Amazing Shake, um, it's really a culmination event of everything that we work on during the SOAR day. Um, and also what the schools are trying to help students with as well. Um, but what happens at The Amazing Shake is we have 75 of our SOAR students that are coming to compete in a variety of different rounds, and they're gonna be showcasing those soft skills and communication skills that they've been developing while they're in our program. So Thursday morning, round one, they're gonna come in to what we call the gauntlet. 30 different one minute scenarios, everything from how to make a strong first impression, to how to give a press conference, to how to be on a talk show, how to receive a bad gift that you don't really enjoy, how to respond, just a wide variety of experiences that we have Day to day or, you know, every so often as adults, we're helping those kids. We're seeing what those kids are going to respond like with the skills that we've been working on in SOAR.
1: Okay, why the Amazing Shake? Where did this this come from?
4: Yeah, so the Amazing Shake, it comes from an incredible school in Atlanta, Georgia, called the Ron Clark Academy. What I love about the Ron Clark Academy is they believe the biggest things about their students are possible. They don't put a cap on what students can do. And so they created this event called the Amazing Shake and they have encouraged organizations, schools all across America to replicate it and to implement it in their communities. And so we have this is our 5th year to do the Amazing Shake. We have the full support of the Ron Clark Academy. We use some of their their uh, tools and stuff like that to make this program the best it can be.
1: Who who will be the people in the 30 scenarios? Not not the after school. Yeah. The SOAR children, but who are your people that are working with them?
4: Yeah, so The Amazing Shake, it's only possible through investment from the community, buy-in from the community. So um, all of the people that are going to be like part of these scenarios and in later rounds, part, different judges and part of our dinner round are all people from the community. Um, They're business leaders, nonprofit executives, school teachers, um, coaches, you know, all people from all different parts of Northwest Arkansas that just want to invest some time into the students in our program and to be a part of the Amazing Shake.
1: When you and I are talking, it's Tuesday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, This happens Thursday morning. So you've got all sorts of things set up for this one. Mm -hmm. But if someone's interested, they might want to help out or volunteer or lend a hand for another event are there others on the
4: horizon On March 30th and 31st we're hosting the NWA Amazing Shake and so what that is it's an event for any 4th through 8th grade student that lives in Northwest Arkansas you Don't
1: have to be in a sore You
4: don't have school. to be associated with our after school program it's for any student any from any school homeschool or anything like that in Northwest Arkansas. And so if you're a parent, you can sign your kid up. If you're a school, you can bring some students from your school to compete on behalf of your school. Um, But we need, we have open registration right now for students. You can go to AmazingShakeNWA.com to learn more about that. But we also need volunteers. That, That event is going to, be much bigger than our soar event and so we need probably over a hundred volunteers so if you're interested in volunteering you can email us at soar at soarafterschool.com um, to get more information and then you know we also need sponsors to help make this work as well so if you're a company in the area or individual looking to sponsor and make a big difference on some of the, like you know the major things that have been identified as like needing some work on The Amazing Shake is just a wonderful place for students to develop those communication and soft skills that so many businesses are desperately saying they want their employees to have. And we would love to be part of that, building that foundation that helps Northwest Arkansas thrive.
1: And I know you said you're at four elementary schools in Springdale, one in Rogers, Um, but not every student, not Mm -hmm. every family that would like to be able to have an after-school program is able to be in one.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So in the, Across the entire state of Arkansas, for every one student that is enrolled in after school, there are three more on a waiting list somewhere. Mm. And so we know that the need for after school is high for every family, no matter where you come from, how much money you make, what job you're in. You need peace of mind and a safe place for your student to be after school. But you also need quality. You need a place where your kids not only can be and just be in a place, but also can be challenged to become better um, and to become leaders in their schools, homes, and communities, and that's what we want to do at SOAR, and that's what we want to like help people across Arkansas do as well. And so we want to be a hub where people can come and learn about what we do at after school, not to replicate exactly what we're doing as like the only way for after school to happen, but we want to be a resource for anybody wanting to start an after school program, currently doing one, so that we can make sure after school is effective and available to as many kids and families as possible.
1: Ben Radiski is the executive director of the SOAR after-school program. The Amazing Shake takes place tomorrow morning at the Jones Center in Springdale and is open to the public to watch. Five students will receive a $500 scholarship. One student tomorrow will receive a $1,000 scholarship. The Amazing Shake receives support from Cox Communications and the Tyson Family Foundation.
5: KUAF's concert series, The Lunch Hour, will be taking place on Saturday, February 25th during the 5th Annual Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo at the Fayetteville Town Center from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We will be celebrating Black History Month alongside more than 60 black-owned businesses in the region, while enjoying food from local black-owned food vendors and music from artist and filmmaker Mike Day. For more information on the event, visit KUAF.com and look for The Lunch Hour.
0: Later on this Wednesday version of our show, songs. First, Sarah Jane Nelson has written a new book about Max Hunter, an Ozark song collector. He
6: never paid anyone any money for the songs they sang. He would actually help, obviously, do a lot of help on the farm if they happened to be on a farm and they needed help with just regular daily tasks. He'd take that time, he'd stop his world, join their world.
1: And after that, Larkin Poe shares songs.
7: During the pandemic, like, I think we were really craving the live stage. So we really wanted to capture that energy in the studio.
0: That's all yet to come on today's Ozarks at Large.
8: Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season on Saturday, March 11th at Walton Arts Center. Performing music from Sona's debut album release featuring groundbreaking new music that blends acoustic and electric sounds, including works by Paul Haas, Trevor New, and more. After intermission, Sona musicians will raise the roof with the joyously beautiful Symphony No. 3 by Brahms. Tickets and information at sonamusic.org. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in person, outdoors on The Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. This is
0: Ozarks at Large. A bill loosening state regulations on child labor passed in Arkansas Legislative Committee yesterday. Despite facing bipartisan opposition, House Bill 1410 was approved by members of the House Public Health, Welfare, and Labor Committee. Republican Representative Rebecca Burks, the bill's sponsor, said it would do away with the work permit currently required for Arkansans under 16 years of age to get a job.
5: This bill only, only seeks to eliminate that piece of paper,
6: that permit that is required for that individual to get a job. It does not change anything about federal or state laws relating to the number of hours that these individuals can work, the number of days that they can work, the kinds of industries that they can work in. Those laws are still on the books and not affected by this elimination of this one piece of red tape that has to happen before one of these folks
9: can get a job.
1: Work permits currently require proof of age, a description of the work schedule, and parental consent. Josh Price with the nonprofit immigrants' rights group Arkansas United spoke against the bill, saying it could lead to some children falling through the cracks in the system.
2: You're not requiring an employee ID, you're not requiring a certification, you're not pro- providing a proof of age. And then Arkansas is currently one of just a few states that does not require employers to provide a pay stub. So on top of that, you have no identification of the employer. You're not providing a pay stub. So how do we know that these employees are even being paid a fair wage?
0: Bryce argued companies could also use the lack of documentation as a way to evade paying taxes on certain employees' wages or to avoid paying them the minimum wage. The bill passed on a vote of 12 to 7 and now goes to the full House
1: for consideration. An amended version of Senate Bill 197 to prohibit restrictions by local governments on the regulation of short-term rentals in Arkansas was heard by the Senate City, County, and Local Affairs Committee yesterday. Short-term rentals are whole apartments and houses rented by the day to travelers for profit by property owners and increasingly by property managers. Co-sponsor Senator Joshua Bryant, a Republican from Rogers, added a new clause to his bill, requiring short-term rental owners to obtain a cost-free permit from their local government to operate and pay necessary taxes. Beyond that, Brian says Arkansans have a constitutional right to use the property without government intrusion.
10: To summarize, our cities and towns have long allowed for long- and short-term residential properties to exist in residentially zoned uses. The right to sell or to rent one's property has long been recognized by our courts and is considered incidental to ownership. This bill ensure these rights will remain equal among the residential markets. The quiet enjoyment of all property can and should be addressed using police powers, not zoning authority.
1: Committee members heard testimony from a dozen individuals and managers who are short-term rental operators that support statewide deregulation. A half-dozen community members and experts also spoke about the need to regulate in order to preserve local neighborhoods from commercial disruption and to maintain affordable housing for local residents. John Wilkerson, general counsel for the Arkansas Municipal League, says he's fielding a lot of calls from concerned mayors, city planners, and city attorneys.
10: What I worry about happening is that cities are just gutted from the ability to regulate. These are different entities that we've really ever seen before in the state. Now, again, the idea of the grandmother renting out their basement, that's nothing new. We get that. It's it's the out-of-towners buying up those tracts of land, having no no real investment in the community other than this, this house, and then renting it out.
0: Members of the Senate, City, County, and Local Affairs Committee voted to pass the bill. Pending further amendment, the measure will be transmitted to the House. A bill passed by the Arkansas Senate yesterday would open a physician up to litigation if they offer gender-affirming care to children. Josie Lenora has more with our partner station, KUAR.
5: SB 199 would give people who received gender-affirming care as a child, including hormones and puberty blockers, a 15-year window to sue their physician. Its sponsor, Republican Gary Stubblefield, says the law would protect young children from the medical effects of irreversible surgeries and hormone treatments. However, no gender affirmation surgeries are performed on minors in the state of Arkansas, and young children are not eligible for gender-affirming medical treatments. Democratic Senator Clark Tucker called the bill big government overreach and said it was born out of misconceptions.
1: And 99 percent of the people in this state will never have any idea that this bill passes. But for the people whose lives it does affect, it's soul-crushing for them.
5: Tucker broke down a number of different ways he found the bill to be unconstitutional. Pointing out a similar Arkansas law called the SAFE Act was eventually blocked by a federal judge. The bill passed on a vote of 29-6 to and now goes to a House committee. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora.
1: A pair of Razorback victories from yesterday to report. The men's basketball team defeated Georgia 97-62 and the baseball team won its home opener over Grambling 9-7.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. You can share anything you hear on our show with people you think would be interested. At OzarksAtLarge.com, each story and interview from our show is available with
1: adjacent links that make sharing through email or social media easy. Speaking of sharing, a new book from Sarah Jane Nelson examines how Max Hunter shared folk songs, jokes, and idioms he collected in the Ozarks. The book, Ballad Hunting with Max Hunter, Stories of an Ozark Folk Song Collector, is published by University of Illinois Press. Hunter's collecting came relatively late, after others like Vance Randolph and Mary Parler had been traversing the Ozarks for years. Sarah Jane Nelson says she discovered Max Hunter because she had a scene gig approaching and was searching for old songs not yet in her repertoire. And a friend's email alerted her to a website devoted to Max Hunter.
6: And when people thought there was nothing out there anymore... Um, particularly in the hills of the Ozarks. He, because he was so um, grounded, really, by his ordinary day job, right? He was a traveling salesman who helped with refrigeration and refrigeration technology. And he would go around to the same people and the same places, 150-mile circuit um, on a regular basis, and he really got to know the people. And he'd hear things, he'd listen. Um, He himself loved to sing, right? He's sitting in his motel with his guitar to keep him company. So he was already wired to be listening to the world that he inhabited. Um, And he realized, oh, there's still stuff out there and it hasn't all been, you know, caught. Um, And as he, said at one point about Randolph, Randolph, if he'd had a little more technology in his time, you know, he would have caught all this stuff. But he he was, you know, somewhat hampered by not having um, all the technology and the mobility that at the point that Hunter started collecting in that mid 50s time he had. Um, So he was very well aware that um, he had this he was in this situation that was really conducive to collecting. Um, it's an awareness that grew slowly, but it, it happened.
1: How, how, what did he use to record the songs and often jokes?
6: Yeah, he um, used a large webcore reel-to-reel, um, which apparently, I mean, the first time he started recording, he was given a tiny little device. Um, I talk about this in the book that he was given a one wire recorder. And apparently it was something that had been used in the military, like by parachuters or something. And they would make their little recording and you literally rub your finger on it and the recording's gone forever. Um, But he was given this device by his father-in-law and it was kind of, he was a gadget guy, is really my sense of him. He loved gadgets. He's given this gadget and he starts kind of recording a song And but then after he sits down and kind of learns the song, he erases it Um, and that he learned pretty quickly at once he ran into some folklorist that, oh, don't do that. Get a real machine. Um, So he goes from that very portable one wire machine to this giant, apparently really heavy (laughs) machine um, that would travel with him.
1: Many people who we know who collected Ozark folklore or folklore, you know, in rural parts of the United States, didn't necessarily have familial roots in those parts. They would kind of come in and and then meet people. His family did have an Ozark history, didn't it?
6: Oh, very deep. Yes. Yes. Um, and tracing back to a lot of Tennessee, that kind of path of immigration, of And he, um, yeah, his roots went extremely deep. And so he, he already had that in with the people that he was connecting with, both as a businessman and as a collector. And he had a real understanding of how to connect with them without putting on the pressure, without coming and taking something and leaving. Right, He never paid anyone any money for the songs they sang. He would actually help, obviously, do a lot of help on the farm. If they happened to be on a farm and they needed help with just regular daily tasks, he'd take that time, he'd stop his world, join their world, and inhabit it in a way that created an, a really unique connection with them.
1: How, how much do we know about how aware of the importance of what he was doing, did he have?
6: Um, I think it was a little slow to evolve um, in terms of the role he would play. He already had. Um, he'd come from a background of a of a family that his mother used to sing a lot, and she'd sit at the piano at night, and there was just sort of the ordinary wallpaper of songs that he'd grown up with early on he did not think of himself as a musician he was not a performer as such but he had this um familial um what i call an early soundscape um, that had surrounded him at least in childhood his sisters had sung um, his mother's sisters had sung there was a lot of that just in the air around him And I think that just predisposed him at that moment in his life where he is an adult and he's starting out on the road. He began, it really struck a chord literally and figuratively for him. It brought him back to what was important culturally for his own upbringing and then in a broader sense. But really until he started talking with academically trained folklorists like Mary Parler and Randolph, it didn't all quite come together as to, here's what you can do to help preserve this culture. Um, you are in a unique position to do that. And that was, um, it was a bit of an evolution, but then it began to really dawn on him. And then he's sending letters to Library of Congress saying, hey, um, I've got some songs, you know, hello, Mr. Jabor over there in DC. So that was an evolution. Um, But those first few years, it just, he was just kind of finding his way into how am I going to do this without putting people off? That was always first and foremost. Relationship for him was like everything, I think.
1: You mentioned that when you you first were given this email, it was midnight and then you get blown away. Do you remember... Any songs in particular that really wowed you with that first impression?
6: Um, well, so many. Um, there's a Harrison Burnett song um, that it's um, Johnny O Johnny, which is an old Civil War song.
3: Oh, Johnny, my Jew, would you think it unkind for me to sit by you and
1: tell you my mind? My mind is too mattery and never too far. For the first time I saw you,
8: you did my heart.
6: But it's Harrison Brunette from University of Arkansas, the night watchman who I write about. And him singing that song, and I'm thinking, he's singing it from a woman's point of view, but it doesn't matter. I mean, he was embodying that voice. And that kind of blew me away. There were several songs. Um, But hearing Harrison sing um was quite something and so many others there there's a um a rosemary and thyme a version of rosemary and thyme um and i think it's yeah ally long parker as you go up to yondos town rosemary and thyme i send my love and best respect to that young lady and tell her she is a true lover of mine Tell her to make me a shirt. Rose Mary in time without shirt. A... And it's just so unique. I'd never heard that one. We've all heard Scarborough Fair and you know, the popularized one. But this one, it just felt really old and ancient and kind of earthy to me, and that like drew me right in. I thought this stuff is coming from it's been somewhere else. These songs have been baking somewhere else <laughs> that I'm not used to. And I love this. Yeah.
1: He obviously you do this for two decades plus, you're going to meet a lot of people. There were some names that people outside of this would know. Almeda Riddle, uh, Jimmy yeah. Driftwood. He, he recorded him too, right?
6: That's right. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I find, um, particularly with Almeida, Um, And I go into it in the book, but there's a really complicated relationship with her. She was really important to Max because she was like, wow, already a very well-known, very highly esteemed singer. Um, But he was also important to her. She kept in touch with him. He represented something to her that was particularly important in terms of authenticity because that was his mantra. Everything had to be the way it was delivered. He wasn't going to change it. Um, but she was also more of an artist. Um, so he had to be cautious in the way he recorded her. Was, you know, was she already dressing the songs up a little bit? Um, because she had such a beautiful aesthetic sense that we admire her for, and a literary sense. But he understood that her brain was sort of in a different place than if he goes um, to record somebody like Goldie Shot, who's in the middle of feeding a bunch of calves out in her garden, you know, before a thunderstorm. And she's just singing an Irish brogue, you know, old ballad and really not, she doesn't think of herself as an artist. She's not in that headset.
1: What does he do with all of these recordings?
6: Yeah. Um, He spends a lot of time bringing home those reel to reels. I think getting help carrying them in. (laughs) It's a whole family affair. And he spent a lot of time literally hunkering down. He gets home, right? He's been traveling during the week, gets home, has some songs he's caught, and he's really excited about it. And I think the world had to stop a lot in the household. That's the sense I get, Um, because he's going to just listen to those recordings get out his legal pads and write every word down and the words aren't always going to make sense and they're not going to be pretty all right he's not editing them if it sounded like um i talk about mom's greens which are like phrases that made no sense that but it's the way he heard it it's the way the singer sang it and he writes it down the way it was delivered but it was a long, tedious, boring job that he really became quite passionate about. And that I think of all messages I, as a writer, get from observing his life, it's that the things we're most passionate about have long moments of drudgery and tedium. It's nothing I thought about in my 20s you know as an early writer it's nothing i wanted to hear or think about but it's the reality of anything we do right of what you do any one of us who do something that we feel strongly about and do it well it just and it took that so we wrote those words down um and eventually they would get into the um digitized version especially when Missouri State University came in and they started digitizing, thankfully, and that helped with preservation of that.
1: They've been digitized. We have the ability yeah. in a very 2023 way to hear what he got.
6: Precisely. It's it's universally accept, accessible now. Um, and I can say that... Um, my uh, discovering the University of Arkansas collection getting into the Mary parlor collection um, both of photographs which gave me not coming from the region right I'm doing this from a distance um, with the exception of a few field trips over there, but getting a real sense of who these people were, seeing those University of Arkansas photos of Fred High with his dog I mean. These things were so moving and inspiring and informative for me. Um, And the most exciting part, um, getting into the University of Arkansas, digitized Ozark Song Collection, was seeing talk. If you go through the list, you'll find titles of songs. And sometimes if you find the the singer, it will say talk. And I'm like, I was right on it because I thought Hunter did not, spend a lot of time interviewing his song, his songsters. He didn't do that. He wanted the songs, and he got a little more sophisticated late in the game. But most of the time, he just say, you know, where they were, the date it was done. And he was meticulous with that, but he didn't find out a lot about their lives, their thoughts about the songs. So every time I saw a talk on the University of Arkansas digitized collection, I was like right on it. And that opened up a lot of narrative that I otherwise would not have had. An amazing experience, but that it's not really over for me because I still sing the songs and there's still a lot of songs I want to learn from the collection. And when I have my, you know, rolling music gigs, especially in the summer, I'll be I'll be sort of finding more songs to sing that I'm not as familiar with, and there's always more I can dig more deeply into, and I just love that, um, the richness of that.
1: Sarah Jane Nelson's book, Ballad Hunting with Max Hunter, Stories of an Ozark Folk Song Collector, published by the University of Illinois Press. She's scheduled to come to the University of Arkansas this spring to discuss the book in person. We'll pass along more details about that. As we have them. By the way, the
0: songs we heard during Kyle's discussion with Sarah Jane Nelson were Johnny O'Johnny, sung by Harrison Burnett in Fayetteville on August 18, 1960, and Rosemary and Time," sung by Mrs. Allie Long Parker in Eureka Springs on April 14, 1958. You can search the Max Hunter collection by going to maxhunter.missouristate.edu. Experience Fayetteville celebrates the local and diverse food scene with Fayetteville
8: Restaurant Week, February 19th through the 25th. Participating restaurants will have limited-time menu offerings and giveaways. Restaurant Week kicks off with Bike to Brunch Sunday the 19th. More information, as well as participating restaurants, available at... Experience Fayetteville.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It includes his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. Diego Rivera's America opens March 11th. Tickets at crystalbridges.org.
1: Tomorrow on Ozarks? We'll talk again with our friend Amos Cochran. He's preparing for a performance of his compositions with the Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet at the King Opera House in Van Buren, a venue he's familiar with, but you've performed inside there. No, no, no,
0: I haven't performed. I have been there for a lot of my life. I used to run sound there some. I used to run lights there some for different plays. My daughter's performed on the stage a million times. Actually, all of my children have performed on that stage at one point. So I've spent a lot of time there, enough to actually have gotten past that point of going oh my gosh this place is amazing you know you walk into a space for the first time and you're like this is wild i've i've been walking in that space for
1: 10 years amos cochran discusses what we'll hear in van buren and why he's bringing his piano with him
0: that's on tomorrow's show at noon and at 7 p.m and also on the podcast version of our show
1: golchera hoja hadn't seen her family in years until they turned up on chinese state tv
3: After many years, I saw their face. I was just happy to see them.
1: Her own mother had been brought on TV to denounce her, a Uyghur woman's story, on the next Morning Edition from NPR News.
0: Morning Edition, tomorrow, from 5 to 9, right here on KUAF Public Radio.
1: Later this week, the band Larkin Poe returns to George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville as part of their Blood Harmony tour. It's in support of the band's latest album, also titled Blood Harmony. It was released late last year. The core of the band, two sisters, Rebecca and Megan Lovell. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis recently reached the sisters via Zoom to talk about the latest release. We first hear from Megan.
7: We spent actually a good amount of time on the road in, in 2021. When we were going into the process of making the album, we really wanted to to try and capture that live energy, especially having spent so much time off the road during the pandemic. Like I think we were really craving the live stage, so we really wanted to capture that energy in the studio. So Blood Harmony was really an attempt to write songs for the stage and to also open up the recording process to more live energy as well in having a lot of live drums, and just recording things in a really rough and raw way.
10: So what do you think sets this release apart from some of your previous efforts?
9: This is Rebecca. I I think the biggest difference between this album and previous records, at least the the last handful of records that we've made, in 2017, we actually started our own record label. And so I Hmm. think that that opened us up to make some more authentic creative decisions. And so I think With Peach and Venom and Faith and Self-Made Man, for instance, those are records where Megan and I played predominantly all the instruments. And that was a really incredible experience to be able to, you know, program drums and, you know, take turns back and forth playing the keyboards and the bass and um, really hold the creative reins very squarely in our own hands. That was awesome. But I do think that it required us to, like, shift a little further away from the way that we are on stage. So in making Blood Harmony, you know, we were able to bring in some of the players that are out on the road with us. We were able to open up the creative process to allow more people in and to have it feel live and raw and and just like we do on the stage. So that energy I think is really refreshing to finally have captured in the studio for Blood Harmony. And I think for that reason, it's one of my favorite albums we've ever made.
10: mentioned that you also created your own record label. I mean, being a touring musician and writing and releasing music—that's you know a huge time sink. But also running a record label is also a huge time sink. How do you manage both worlds?
7: It's a pretty good question, and one that I'm not sure we've completely mastered <laughs> as of now, because it is a lot of—it's a lot of pressure. But I think that we we enjoy the pressure, and we enjoy the self-reliance that that comes along with with owning your own business and, and being able to to hold the reins in, in every way and being able to make all our own decisions. Because when people listen to our record or when they look at the album cover or when they look at our social media, like people can really know it's authentic because it's it's all us. Like We have our finger on the pulse of every part of our business, and, and, and we really enjoy that.
10: If there is one, what would you say is the main inspiration or theme for this latest album, Blood Harmony?
9: Hmm... I think it's it's pretty clear the thread that ties all these songs together is definitely family energy because Megan and I, of course, we go way back, <laughs> all the way back as blood sisters. And, and that really is, I think, one of the most distinctive defining characteristics of, you know, musically who we are and our identity as a band. It really stems purely from our connection as sisters. And it's something that I think We've never exactly taken for granted, that's for sure. But I think as we've gotten older, we've understood the importance and the weight that relationship carries and and how much we truly want to protect and celebrate our, our bond as sisters first and foremost. So being able to write a bunch of songs that speak to the meaning of our relationship and the way that it informs our music and our creative perspective, that felt really healthy and happy for us.
10: So I have two older brothers and I know working with your siblings can be a bit difficult at times, (laughs) but has it been challenging for y'all to remain in a working relationship for more than a decade or has it come very naturally?
7: And I would actually say it's more than a decade because the two of us have always been a package deal. We've always been doing (laughs) projects basically from the ground up. So it's been, uh, it's what, 32 years.
9: (laughs) Yeah.
7: It's really fantastic. In so many ways, especially now that we're in our 30s and we've really worked on our communication skills over the years. I think you kind of have to if you don't want to implode as a sibling band and we really complete each other in a lot of ways and have found such an efficient way of working together. It's it's really it's really fantastic. Not that it isn't a lot of work to keep that relationship healthy and fruitful, but it's the it's the work of our lives.
10: So if there's one of y'all's songs that really kind of epitomizes what it's like y'all working together at this thing, what would it be?
7: Actually, there's a song of ours from years ago. Uh, I believe it was on the album Kin and it is called Stubborn Love and it really is written about our relationship which is what it is it's it's love and it's a stubborn love it's a love that really pulls us through the difficult times and the happy times Uh, that's a good one for that about each other
9: Shout out um, Strike Gold to Meg because that one's very autobiographical of sort of like our work ethic and um, really having a lot of stick to itiveness to being in a band, especially when the going gets tough, the tough gets going type vibes. So I, I would, yeah, I think Stubborn Love and, and, a, and a close second of Strike Gold.
10: You all touched on this a little bit earlier, but you're both multi instrumentalists. How has that? informed the creative process when you're writing songs, putting them together, then getting ready to record them, then finally releasing them out to the world? How does that kind of inform that whole process?
9: Yeah. Again, you know, outside of our sisterhood, the fact that we are musicians and, and that really is probably one of the biggest stripes that we we choose to carry about ourselves. So it definitely informs everything that we do. Whenever we're writing, you know, very rarely do we start with melody or lyric nine times out of 10. It's, it's going to be a guitar riff mm-hmm. or a chord progression that's driving the music that we're making. Or, or in my case, you know, I love writing off of uh, beats and stuff. So being able to program a drum loop for myself that feels inspiring and just to like riff on top of that it absolutely is, is everything that we do musically, which, which I think is refreshing, you know, especially coming up in an industry where so many artists and specifically female artists do not play, you know, Mm -hmm. when you listen to pop radio, it's like the majority of of the singers that you're listening to, you know, are lucky if they can play three chords on the guitar. So to be able to hearken back to the records that really move us with, with having there be real instruments on the record, having those instruments be played well. And, you know, with fluidity and and feeling that's, that's really important to us. And I think you can hear it in pretty much every track on our records.
10: So you've got, you know, another third of this tour left. What else are you looking for in the rest of 2023?
9: That's a great question. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of a work in progress because currently we have so much touring booked, which is definitely part of the course in the world of Larkin Poe. (laughs) We, find ourselves, you know, more out on the road than we do back at home nine times out of 10. But I actually think that we want to try and do some new stuff, you know, like we've been touring together. We actually just realized this year is our 18th year of touring as a band. And that's like, you know, we've been a band for 13 years as Larkin Poe, but even five years previous, that's when we really started touring. And that's a, that's a lot of years. Like, I think whenever we verbalized that number to each other, we were a little bit flummoxed, like, Oh my God, how can this have happened? We've been toying longer than, you know, 50% of our life, which is really amazing. And, and what a gift. Yeah. But also I think we want to try and figure out like, you know, some ways of, of shaking things up. We, we never want to get stuck too deeply in a groove. You know, like when you drop a, a needle on a record, you want the needle to like sit lightly on that record and like bring out some beautiful sounds. You don't yeah. want the record digging deep and destroying the album. So that's something that we want to be really conscientious of this year and try some new stuff.
10: Well, Megan Rebecca, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and congratulations on 18 years touring together. That's that's incredible.
9: <laughs> thank you so much. You. And we appreciate you.
0: That was Rebecca and Megan Level of the band Larkin Poe. They spoke with Ozarks at Large Timothy Dennis via Zoom earlier this week. They will perform at 8.30 p.m. Saturday at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Tickets are $25 in advance, $30 at the door. You can find out more about the band at Larkinpo.com or on social media.
8: Coming up this week on If That Ain't Country with your local host, Western Red. G'day, folks. We've got music on the way from Sammy Smith, Ronnie Millsap and Johnny Gimble, and we'll be remembering a big truck-driving album, which also had a few hidden two-stepping
0: gems. If that ain't country, Saturday night at 9 on 91.3 KUAF.
1: Coming up in a few weeks, an interview with Western Red's wife. Ooh. Not about country music. Just an interview. Yeah, I mean, she's a very smart woman who knows a lot about um, exercise.
0: Ooh. I'm excited for that. Yeah, it'll be fun. Nice. Uh,
1: last night, you uh, and Karee Banton and others had another Undisciplined Live event.
0: Yeah, Speaking of talking to people who knew a lot of things about a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about the history of food insecurity in northwest Arkansas. Really, really engaging conversation um, from a wide you know, a wide variety of folks in different areas of knowledge, whether it's working in food banks. We talked as well to uh, Reverend Monique Jones, who runs the Jahagan Outreach Center. Right. Um, We talked to Representative Denise Garner, who has a history of working in food banks and now works on the political level. We talked to a lobbyist who works in this world. A lot of really good, smart people. Um, That conversation will be in the podcast feed, the Undisciplined podcast feed,
1: a week from today. And we'll hear an excerpt on Ozarks Large a week from today. That's right. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Bluffton. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2.
0: Contributors today include Daniel Carruth, Timothy Dennis, and Josie Lenora. Jacqueline Froehlich contributed news and sound regarding the legislature's approach to short-term rentals. Additional material came from inside the newsroom at KUAR. Public Radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. I make
1: it sound so mysterious when I say it like that from <laughs> inside the newsroom. <laughs> but we do appreciate um, everything that the folks at KUAR and our other partner station, KSU, do for us. Absolutely. Couldn't do it without partners. We couldn't do this without you. If you uh, would like to know more about supporting us or it's your turn to support us, support KUAF.com.
0: It's simple. It's easy. It takes just a couple clicks on a computer or your phone.
1: And you can just determine the amount and the method. All right. We'll be back tomorrow, noon and 7. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore.